0: Thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Open your Bible to three places where we're going to start. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 12, and then we're going to make our way to Romans chapter 8, and then where the next scripture we'll look at is in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to get ahead, let's look at those. I want you to see them in your own, in your own Bible as today we turn our attention to the doctrine of God's predestination. God's predestination. Last week, we studied God's foreknowledge. And it was a wonderful Bible study to think. Remember, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15, we learned in the life of Rehoboam and how he foolishly responded to the council. In verse 15, he says... Uh, The Bible says, so the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of affairs was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. It was a turn of affairs from the Lord that God used to bring about his will. Now notice verse 24. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren for the children The children of Israel, let every man return to his house, and then we had you underline, for this thing is from me, therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Go with me to Romans chapter eight now, as we dive into this beautiful doctrine of God's predestination, and we learned in Romans chapter eight, verse twenty eight, what a what a promise to hold on to. It could very well be that God would bring you here and have you tune in and have you listening on the radio at this time just to be reminded of this glorious truth about God's love for his people. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for, what does your Bible say? For good. To those who love God. Do you love God? So God right now, for every believer, this is a promise for only born-again believers... God, right now, for those of you that love God, he's working all things together for the good to those that are called according to his purpose. We just don't see how all things can possibly work together. That's our problem. It's hard to conceive how God can work all things together. I think that we can come to a place where we would say at times God can work some things together for the good. I can believe that. God can work some things together or God can work a few of these things together. I can believe that, but all things, God works all things together for the good. And if Romans chapter 8 ended in verse 28, we would be left with questions of who is God and how does he do it? Because how God does something is directly related to who he is, his character and his nature. Some take Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and compare it with things that are going on in our lives and it's easy to walk away and just not believe this text. To walk away in unbelief because of the pain and the difficulty of what you're currently experiencing. The issues of today can so easily and quickly blind us to God's purposeful plan for our lives. To his omniscience, which we learned last week is his foreknowledge to his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature, that his plan of salvation is wonderful. Now, while we looked at his foreknowledge last week, I also now want to combine that with God's predestination. So much debate and conflict happens in the church over this one doctrine. We need to know who God is because once we understand who God is, we will then back up a couple of verses to verse 28 and say, ah, that's the God that can work all things together for the good. Not just because he knows all things, but because he acts according to what he already knows. So notice verse 29. For whom he foreknew, speaking of believers, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, verse 30, Whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you like to take notes, circle the word predestined. predestined, Or you could write next to it predestination. Sounds like a scary word. It's a heavy word. But it's literally defined as to determine something beforehand. Beforehand or marking out and appointing and here's what it means doctrinally to us as believers that god in advance independent of you but knowing you chose you that's a powerful thought god in advance independent of you but knowing you chose you the lord has pre- predetermined the destiny of every person who believes in him He says as much in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, jot it down. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you god chose us and called us for what Well, notice verse 29 that we might be conformed into the image of his son that's where we're headed that jesus might have a relationship with us that he would be the firstborn among many brethren so the question with predestination that we need to settle at the beginning is does that mean we don't have a choice in the matter And we looked at that in 1 Kings 12. Does that mean that we're just having to deal with fate? As the world would say today, so many in the world. Some have come to that conclusion and have a very stern, stiff view of predestination that I don't really believe that's biblical. It's more of the worldly view of fate, but that's not what God is saying at all. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm laying a foundation for the rest of our Bible study. These are important scriptures to understand in light of what the Bible teaches on the sovereignty of God and His power to predestine, His prerogative to predestine, His choice in predestination. And you'll notice at the outset that anytime predestination is mentioned in the scriptures, it's mentioned directly related to believers. You won't find anywhere in the scripture A passage that says God has predestined those to go to hell. Nowhere in the scriptures. That is simply the logical conclusion of human reasoning having to deal with this beautiful doctrine of predestination. Here's what God does. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the for knowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, the election of God, the predestination of God is according to what? His foreknowledge. We learned in our study last time that if God knows anything, and he does, then by definition he knows Everything. If God is limited in any element of knowledge, then he no longer is God. So God not only knows anything, he knows everything. And God knows in advance and has chosen those who would choose him. God already knows that in advance. God is able to look ahead. Now, according to us, we look ahead in time. Now, we have to use those, that kind of terminology to describe God. But God doesn't think in terms of time because God is outside of time. We're stuck in time. We kind of see things in one long line from birth to life. And we have each of stages of life. And at the end of that line is when we pass away from this earth. We think of time. We think of life in terms of time. But God is outside of time. But if we use that, def- that, that language, we, we use language that refers to human beings in order to understand God, we would say it this way. God is able to look ahead in time and see who would accept him, and those are the ones that he called, elected, and predestined and chosen. He's elect, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God for his purpose and for his will. God knows the end from the beginning. And already, on page number two of our notes, the enormity of this doctrine is causing some of your heads to just spin a little bit and you're trying to grasp time, outside of time, see ahead, make a choice, God can't make any choice outside of his foreknowledge because he knows all things. He doesn't set aside his foreknowledge in order to make a decision. And the fact that God knows all things, we call that God's omniscience, and there isn't one thing that God doesn't know or needs to learn. And we learned that last time when we looked at the doctrine or the the false teaching of open theism where there's a system of belief today that says that God doesn't know everything and he learns things just like we learn things. And we looked at that in depth in some of their proof texts. Theologically, we defined it this way. God knows all things, both actual and possible, past and present, future, completely, perfectly, simultaneously, and eternally. All aspects of the eternal purpose of God are equally timeless. Timeless which can be hard for us to grasp because we are stuck in time. We're stuck in time. We think of things as yesterday and today and tomorrow. We think of things in minutes and seconds and hours and days and months and weeks, and I know I didn't put those all in order, but they all fit together. We understand time. And a simple picture, of course, we looked at it briefly, is being at a parade and being up in a blimp where you're able to see the beginning from the end. And the person watching the parade is sitting on the curb, seeing one float at a time. How? As it goes right by you. And you can't see around the corner, but the blimps all, or the, the floats in a parade all are going to take that big turn on the corner, but you're not going to see them until they get in front of you. But if you were up a little bit higher, if you were just up in, in the blimp with the cameraman, you'd be able to see the beginning of the end. You'd be able to conceive the whole thing. And it's a limited illustration, but it's the closest we can get in understanding the ability to see the beginning from the end and everything in the middle. God knows and sees all and chose us because of his foreknowledge that we chose him. And it's an incredible doctrine. Let me show you another verse. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse one. And, and actually, I read that backwards. It's chapter one, verse four. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We see these two things go hand in hand all throughout the Bible. You see it throughout the Bible. God's election, God's choosing, God's predestination, God's sovereignty and his absolute power. We see that in verse, one, uh, verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren your election by God. Your election is by God. I know the emphasis so often in our, in our times of ministry is, is our decision making. And we'll call you to make a decision. We'll call you to respond. We'll call you that what you listen to. We'll ask you to obey. We'll ask you to believe. We'll ask you to repent. We, we place a lot of action, a lot of emphasis where the Bible does in your response. And one of the reasons is, is because we're together here in time. I'm teaching you here on a particular day, at a particular time, in a particular location. Whether you're here in the building or you're listening in through technology, you're hearing this at a time. And yet God is able outside of time to elect us according to his foreknowledge, what he knows. Now, jump down to verse 6. So we emphasize it because so often the Bible emphasizes it. It says in verse six, you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word. How did you become followers of God? You received the word. And in much affliction, you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You were on the one hand elected by God and on the other hand, you received the word. Those two always go together. You have God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. You have the sovereign power of God in election and in predestination, and you also have man's responsibility and his ability to make a decision, which is commonly referred to as free will. And even when you start drilling down free will, people debate about that. What is free will, what isn't free will? God's choice and our choice. God's action, our action. God's choice goes along with your believing in him. And if you watch and read the Bible carefully, you see this combination everywhere. Now, the doctrine of predestination has become a pretty big battlefield in the church today over the last few years, many years, in fact. For some, it's become a place of argumentation and contention and you're not able to talk about these things without getting into an argument and probably ending up disagreeing and making sure everybody knows that there's a disagreement. And there are primarily two extremes that will be taken with this doctrine in the modern church. Two extremes. Some of you are familiar with these. Some of you are not. But you'll have a small understanding, a simple understanding of the two extremes so you can, you can understand by the time we're done today on how easy it is to go one one side or the other instead of walking down the balance of the middle and i'll explain it in a moment extreme one number one is something known as a theological system known as calvinism 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 is a doctrine based on the teachings of a man by the name of john calvin and one of the reformers uh, and 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 his assistant beza one of the reformers during the time of martin luther and there are five basic points to Calvinism that are summarized by the word tulip, like the, like the flower. And they use each of the letters of tulip to remember five basic. It's certainly not a, an exhaustive view of this doctrine, but it's a simple way to remember the five key pillars of Calvinism. Now, even within Calvinism, there are people that say there are six or seven different points, but we're not getting into of all that. I'm just going to give you the five common ones, the word tulip. T stands for their belief in total depravity. The U stands for an unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement, which is very disturbing, which limited atonement referred to the doctrine that Jesus Christ didn't die for everyone. He only died for some. I stands for the word irresistible grace, and P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And the most troubling extreme that comes from within Calvinism is that God has predestined some to be saved and predestined others to be damned. This is known as the doctrine of double predestination. And if you believe in a strict view of predestination, as Calvin taught, uh, predestining, predest the view of predestination for believers, then it naturally follows logically that you believe that God, you may not verbalize it, but you believe that God predestined everyone else for hell. The idea behind this is that the ones predestined to be damned have no hope and can never be saved, ever. No matter what you tell them, no matter what gospel is preached to them, there is no hope. There is a strict idea that God has chosen some and not others, and that the call of the gospel is only for those that are already saved, but not yet saved, in the mind of this theological system. So that means if you're not predestined to be saved, then it's too bad for you. It's too bad. What this does is takes away any decision from anyone here, because if God has already predestined you to be saved, then you're gonna be saved whether you like it or not. And there'll be no cooperation with you in order to be brought alive, and then after God brings you alive, then you then will be born again, which is really the doctrine that you'll be born again twice. One God will do, and the other you'll cooperate with. I really don't see that in the Bible, or in the heart of God. Looking back at the Garden of Eden, this, this is the essence to have a doctrine that eliminates man's free will. When you look back in the Garden of Eden, before any theological systems were developed, before anyone was starting to deal with this stuff, or trying to, even before the Book of Romans was ever written, before the whole Bible was written, we've got these two human beings that God created in the Garden of Eden. And he placed them in the, in the Garden to tend and take care of and enjoy the Garden, but more importantly, they were created, why? To enjoy fellowship with God. That as long as they obeyed God, they enjoyed fellowship with God. As long as they did what God told them to do, they enjoyed fellowship. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes them as walking with God in the cool of the garden. The idea behind that is intimacy and closeness. That God was dwelling with man before sin. It was an amazing thing. And now, if it was already predestined that Adam would eat and die, then why include the story? If Adam was predestined to commit sin, then he could have turned around and blamed God for that action. But sin isn't God's fault. And nowhere in the revealed scriptures do we find God taking responsibility for Adam's sin. Who took responsibility for Adam's sin? Adam. And who pays the price for Adam's sin every day of their life? We do. Why? Because when Adam and Eve, after sin, began to procreate, they could only create little sinners. By nature. By nature. So the question in the Garden of Eden is simply this. Did Adam and Eve have a true free will to make a choice in the Garden of Eden? Because if they didn't, then it was all God's fault. If they really didn't have any choice in the matter, then God was not being honest with them when he told them, you can have everything but that. Don't touch that. But by the way, you're not gonna really have a choice in the matter because you're already gonna, I've already predestined that you're gonna do it and you don't have any choice in the matter. No, they were created with free will. They were created with the ability to make a free will decision. And that was not lost in the fall. As you read from every single person following Adam and Eve, every fallen person after Adam and Eve, spiritually dead, making free will decisions that they themselves are fully responsible, both in the Old Covenant and also in the New. And it's since the Garden of Eden, man has had a choice to relate to God or not relate to God, to accept or reject Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Covenant, men and women had the decision to to become a part of the sacrificial system or to reject it with those uh, enemies of God, God waits 400 years for them to repent, and they don't, and judgment comes. Calvinism on the one side. On the other side, another extreme that's easy to fall into is something known as Arminianism. This is a doctrine that was based upon the teachings of a man by the name of Jacobus Arminianus, Arminius. And he taught, man, he taught that man made all the choices apart from God completely, So you see the pendulum swings completely to the other side. His doctrine was, wait a minute, it's all up to man. It's all about man's choices. And he taught that the most troubling part of Arminianism is that since man chooses Jesus, he must continue to choose Jesus or he'll lose his salvation. And so what has that created? X created a doctrine where people are never assured of their salvation because it's all up to them and not sovereign God. And you don't have the assurance that God saves. You don't have the assurance when you read that, God is, that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so you, you find that those that follow that teaching will find themselves, they have their salvation, then they lose it. Then they gotta get it back and lose it. Gotta get it back and, got, and they never really have any kind of assurance. So on one end, one side of the doctrine eliminates man's free will altogether and you just get along with God's program. And on the other side, it's not really about God at all. It's all about man. And so, on the one hand, God's sovereignty is emphasized and man has no free will. On the other side, man's free will is emphasized and God loses his sovereignty. The truth, I believe, is in the middle. The Bible doesn't pigeonhole itself and fit into a nice little package. The free will of man cooperates with the sovereignty of God. You'll read it page after page. God's sovereignty, man's choice. God's sovereignty, man's choice. God's sovereignty in his election, his predestination, his foreknowledge, man's choice and his responsibility for his choices. You have to understand something. You and I are responsible to God for the decisions that we make. You and I are responsible to God for the actions that we take. We can't simply step back and say, well, God, if it's all of you, then I'm not responsible. It's your fault. And yet at the same time, though, although we have responsibility, God is sovereign. And he has ordered and put together the plan of salvation for you and I so that we can both make decisions and have assurance at the same time. Now, now here's the mistake that is often made. Being men and women that like things explained and clear and clean, many have taken and attempted to reconcile the sovereignty of God with the free will of man and try to explain them and put them together. And that's where I think we make an error because the Bible never attempts to reconcile the two. The Bible just tells you straight up, God is sovereign and you have a choice. Trust him. The God, God, he has laid before us in this mystery where they can't be figured out. There are a lot of mysteries that God includes in his scriptures that produce an awe in me. Like, like for example, the, the greatest mystery, the greatest mystery isn't that God chooses, and the greatest mystery isn't not that we respond to the gospel. I'll tell you a mystery that, that the longer I walk with the Lord, the more intrigues me, and it's simply this. The mystery for me is that God would love me so much that he would rescue my life so many years ago. That's mysterious to me. I don't deserve that. There wasn't anything in my life that deserved any intervention on God. If God could have chosen in his own free will to let me keep going the way I was going and end off in a ditch myself. But when I think of that, I don't try to explain it. I don't go back and say, you know, back in 1991, I really wasn't that bad. I mean, I was bad, but I wasn't really that bad. So I can find a few things that God would see in me over my neighbor. And and I can see how he put me in, and I can start to figure it out and then explain away the glorious truth that for whatever reason in God's sovereignty, he reached down in my life and in yours. Try to explain it away, and you'll stir up pride in your life. Try to explain it away and you'll miss the, the awesomeness of God intervening. You try to explain it away or try to reconcile it with your own behavior in the time and you will miss the reality of God's love for you. You'll just remove God's love from you whatsoever and then you'll think you deserve it. I wanna search out the mysteries. You know, I'm a, I'm a student of the Bible. That's what God ordained my life to be. I didn't know that would be the end of my life. I didn't know, I was just talking recently Uh, to, To somebody, as I was back in Florida teaching at a men's conference, I was talking to somebody about an English teacher, how of all the teachers had to put up with my nonsense, one teacher did not put up with my nonsense. My seventh grade English teacher, Mr. Ellington. Mr. Ellington did not mess around with this young man that seemed to get his way in every other class, but not Mr. Ellington. Mr. Ellington was about six, five, 6'6 and stood towering, towering over this young kid that just started junior high that used to get away with everything in class, would get away with jokes and being the class clown. I would get away with passing notes and causing all kinds of havoc. And the one thing I really got away with anywhere and everywhere I went was speaking with improper English. Double negatives and and words that shouldn't be included in sentences and and all of that i would teach talk to teachers like that i would just and and for all those years for si- all those 6th grade years i pretty much got away with it until 7th grade english and of all the kids in class for some reason mr ellington just was at my desk all the time and he would knock on the desk and he wouldn't bend down to do it either. I don't know how long his arms really were, but he would stand towering, and we don't do that in this class. We don't speak like that. And he would be on the other end in his desk and I'd try to be in the desk as far away from him and I would speak to my neighbor and I'd whisper some double, I ain't going there. And he'd say, we don't say ain't in here. I'm like, "What? what is it? How can he hear me that far? And on and on, I had him for first semester English because he taught all the honors classes. So I, guess what, second semester, Mr. Ellington, graduating in eighth grade, forget this, leaving seventh grade English behind, you stay with the seventh graders. No, he moved up with us. <laughs> eighth grade English as it continued on. Um, man, that, that guy, he did not let me get away with anything. I mean, he rode me like you wouldn't believe. And he wouldn't mess around. And he wasn't the kind of guy that would send you to the office. He'd just take care of it himself. But he was a nice man. And he was a kind man. Firm and stern, but he was nice to me. You could even say, if I look back with the memory that I have, that he was respectful in his corrections of me. Something in his young, because he was a younger man back then, something in his young teaching saw something in me. And didn't let me get away with, I mean, by the time I left eighth grade, my language was very different. I didn't leave those bad words behind, but now I use them in proper sentences. (laughs) Why? Because of Mr. Ellington. Don't forget that man. I haven't. He, He was so kind to me that when he chose a group of people in class to go see his college and visit his home and introduce us to his wife, No other teacher ever did that. Then Mr. Ellington chose me, that punk, troublemaking kid in his class, to be a part of that group with all the other nice kids that never seemed to get in any trouble. I had one other teacher take me to his house. That was Mr. Palmer, our baseball coach, and he took us all to his house so we could do his lawn and wash his car. (laughs) I don't know how you can get away with that. You probably can't get away with that now. But we didn't like to go to his, and he never told us. Instead of practice, we'd go, he'd take us to his house. I don't think that was fair. Mr. Palmer, if you're listening, that was wrong that you did that. <laughs> and Mr. Ellington took a liking to me, and, and, and I responded to that. And I, I wrote better because of him. I wrote better papers. I spoke better because of him. And he even ended up in our high school a couple years later, but he stayed in the lower grades when we were in the upper grades, and, and I was in trouble so much that I really didn't get to relate to him. But How would Mr. Ellington know that seventh grade punk in that whole class would one day become a preacher? who His whole life would be reading and writing two, basically two term papers a week for the rest of his life. Which is pretty much what my notes are. I'm a, I read and pray and research and write two papers a week. Sometimes three or more. In Florida, I taught six times in two days. I mean, that was like, whoa. All right, it was good. I loved it. Great time. Well, later on, when, after I became uh, a pastor and, and my life has changed and now we're fast-forwarding many years here now in Colorado, I started getting on Facebook a few years ago, and God brought Mr. Ellington to mind, so I, I tried to connect with him, and I found him. Um, turns out that all throughout those years in, 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 uh, in high school, he's a believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing at my desk, towering over me, telling me to, t- to speak right telling me that he wasn't going to let me get away, seeing potential in me that that no one else seemed to see, including myself. And, And he's a believer. He's still walking with the Lord. I mean, Mr. Ellington and I are so close, we're on each other's Christmas card list. His kids have grown up, married, I've seen pictures of his grandkid. I've been able, you know how you get to that, that nostalgic thing where you want to reach out and thank him? I thanked him multiple times. Little did he know that he would be pouring into this kid. Little did he know that, that this kid would grow up and use the skills that, that he taught me in English. Uh, to improve my speaking, to communicate the gospel in a clear way. And you, you don't know who God is putting into your life. And you see the sovereignty of God. I didn't plan on being in that class. I certainly didn't ask him to ride my case the whole two years I was with him. And yet his choice to be the teacher that he wanted to apply himself to obey perhaps the prompting of the Holy Spirit To man, take care of this guy. I've got a plan for this kid. Nobody sees it but me, but I want you to take care of this guy. And you see this all throughout life, and you see this all throughout scripture. I'm not trying to explain it. When I think of stories like that in my life, as I start looking back, it just leaves me in awe. I mean, I can go back in my own life, and I'm doing this in my life to stir memories in yours so that you realize there's a lot of things in your life as God has ministered to you over the years, a lot of things maybe you don't even like about, you don't like the family you're in, you don't like the way you were raised, you don't like how you were treated, but God is working all things together for the good so that you are who you are today by the will of God. All of your choices and God's sovereign choice are being worked together for the good as he does his work in and through you. And if you go back and try to explain everything, and if you go back and try to figure everything out, and you go back and try to fix things in your mind, and you keep living, but I was treated this way, Ed, I know, but God even used that to make you who you are today. And if you keep living on trying to fix the past and trying to work the past and even trying to, to in your life, trying to do things so that you might try to prove yourself to the past, you, you're, you're missing out on the present and what God wants to do in your life right now. And you're missing out on the awe that you're still alive. Here you are, you're still here. I, I think back on my own life and, and being just a little baby and this young mom saying, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to take care of this guy and I'm not gonna abort him I'm gonna hand him off for adoption and another family's gonna raise him. And there I was in the Los Angeles County adoption system, not knowing how many babies were in the room, but there were many babies in that room. And while my parents were wanting to adopt their second child and a little boy, they walked into this room and my mom whispered to my dad, I want the ugliest baby in here. No, she didn't do that. If you're listening from heaven, mom, I'm sorry. (laughs) And they walk in and through whatever series of events and their choice to adopt, they took me home. And what a life um, was changed for them by me being in their life. But God was faithful. It was all part of his plan. My parents choosing a baby, a woman choosing adoption, and God's sovereignty working together. You try to explain that, you're going to miss the awe of God. You try to explain these things and say, well, I know doctrinally, this is the way it is, and this is, and even to the point where I know some of you listening around, you are predestined. Man, you're going to miss out on the love and the mercy and the grace of God, the God that the Bible says so loved you that he sent his only begotten son, so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We just have to remember, according to Isaiah, that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We, we don't want to fall too far on man's free will and say, well, it's all about us. And we don't want to fall too far, well, you know, it's God's sovereignty and he doesn't have any free will. I mean, that eliminates a lot of passages and a lot of truths in the Scripture. And I just know in my life, after much thought on this topic and much study and much prayer, I've come to the conclusion, what are you, a Calvinist? What are you, an Arminian? This is my conclusion. I'm a Christian, and I wanna follow Jesus and be used of him to save souls. That's my conclusion. That's where I'm at. I wanna preach the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone that will hear, so that whosoever will believe in him will not perish and have everlasting life. That's what I wanna do. That's what I've dedicated my life to do. That's what I'll continue to do if I keep my eyes on him and enjoy my abiding relationship with him. Otherwise, I'll get all sidetracked and I'll be arguing all the time and I won't be involved in what God's doing on the earth today. I don't want to argue. And usually the arguments on these type of t- teachings, these, and, and there's many others. I just went to the two popular ones, but I'll say this. Most of the arguments come from believers trying to talk other believers out of their belief. That's pretty much what it is. Somebody will gain on say, well, this is my new doctrine and you believe wrong. Man, seriously, I don't really have time for that. You're talking to a believer. Well, you know, according to my doctrine, you're not a real believer. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't see, I just don't, I mean, I see Jesus calling out Hypocrites. I see Jesus calling out guys, religious rulers, that are hurting people, not taking care of the poor. I see Jesus calling out people that don't care about the lame, don't care about the sick. I see Jesus calling people out that aren't giving, that aren't loving, that aren't gracious. I see that. And then when they come to him and say, hey Jesus, there's these guys, You know, they don't follow us, but, but they're over there prophesying, they're over there. And Jesus says, man, let them go. If they're not, if they're preaching the gospel, they're not against us. If they're they're not against us, so just let them go. He didn't send them over and go, we'll go talk them out of it and make sure they follow. I mean, he was gracious. We need to be gracious. Any doctrine, any man's doctrine that you adopt, that I adopt, we adopt, that makes us unloving, not gracious, uncaring, arguers, strivers, fighters. I'm just asking you, take that back to the Lord and make sure it came from Him. Because anything that comes from the Lord is going to reflect His love and His mercy and His grace. Remember we learn in Titus, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. And he says, over the law. This has been, this kind of argumentation has been with us forever. Sure, false teaching and things that are against the very substance of who Jesus is and his work of salvation, we need to take a stand for. But in our stance, we need to do so in love and grace and make sure we don't miss that the real deal is the lost. God, it will teach the truth here, but I'm assured of this, speaking in a much broader sense now, not just our our talk on predestination here, but in a much broader sense, false teaching and weird stuff out there. We're going to teach the truth and we're going to take a stand on truth. But you can rest assured, God will deal with false teachers. And I just don't want to be one of them. God will deal with them. God will deal with, you got some difficult people in your life right now and you might try to chase down every fire, you know, put out every fire on you. Listen, God will deal with the people causing you grief right now. God will deal. Now, you hope that he deals with them in grace. Sometimes you hope he deals with them in judgment, but you hope <laughs> he deals with them in grace because that's how he deals with you. Why would you want him to deal with you in grace and to wipe out that person? I'll tell you why. You want to know why? Jot this down. You've got to write this down. Why would you want grace for yourself and judgment for someone else? Let me tell you. Draw it, write it down. Write it on your hand if you have to. You can just write it this way. Because I'm in the flesh. Not Ed, you. So you're writing for yourself. Don't write Ed's in the flesh. Like, the reason why we want grace for ourselves and judgment for others is because we're in the flesh. Because if our eyes are on Jesus on the cross, we recognize that grace is for everyone. And forgiveness is because we've been forgiven so much. Who are we to withhold forgiveness on anyone else? And just love and let the Holy Spirit work out his fruit in our lives. Love, joy, joy. Peace, patience. release them to the Lord. I've learned a phrase. I mean, I, I, I didn't learn it like brand new, but God's brought it back to my life recently. Um, uh, from my wife, actually, a situation recently happened. Uh, it was really a longer situation, but um, it recently we we're talking. And she just, said it's in the Lord's hands. And just start writing that out, man. You got this issue, and you're praying. It's in the Lord's hands. And every time you pray about, like some of you were praying as we were interceding, and you pray, it's in the Lord's hands in the Lord's hands. Trust him. Love him. And go to other things so that you can say, well, that one's in the Lord's hands too. And that one's in the and you meet somebody at work and you're praying for them. You show the God, I don't want, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna tell you around. I'm gonna pray for you. And then I'm gonna say, you're in the Lord's hands. And how comforting that is. But what do we do? We try to explain things. We try to understand things. And then we come to a place where we think we understand everything only to find out soon enough that we actually understand nothing. We need to know the love of God. The free will of man and the sovereignty of God are two truths held in tension. We need them both without explaining away either. We need the sovereignty of God. We need the free will of man. Just like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco relies, it's a tension bridge. I'm not an engineer, so I can't speak to all the details about it, but it's a a bridge that's held up in tension. The span is needing that tension to remain standing. And so you know that you're called and you know that you're chosen and you know that you're saved, that you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's working that in your life. He's working all things together for the good and all that responds, instead of trying to figure it out, we rejoice in it and we say, amen, Lord. I don't understand why you saved me. I don't understand why you began to work in my life. I don't understand what my future is, but man, I'll tell you this. I understand your great love because I experienced it myself and I'm grateful that you intervened in my life. Responding as Jesus cried out in John 7, verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood and cried, if anyone thirsts, anyone. He was talking to all the old covenant uh, believers there. He was also talking to all the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles, the court. He was saying, anyone. I love that. Just come to him and drink. The spirit and the bride say, come, Revelation 22. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirst, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. John 3.16, the door is open to anyone and whoever whoever would believe in him. In John 3.36, it says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the door is open for you today, listening to me, whether you want to believe in God or not. That's the real choice. If you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're lost. And I read in the scriptures, no one that's ever asked to be saved has been refused because they were not predestined to be saved. (laughs) No one's been, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you heard the message, but you can't hear the message. Because you're not part of my plan. Jesus uh, Paul would write to Timothy, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Now that doesn't mean everyone's saved. Don't think of this as universalism that everyone gets saved in the end. That's not there's there's condition, and the condition is faith. Repentance of sin. It's all packaged. God sees you right now and knows whether you'll have accepted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you will or have, then he's predestined you according to his foreknowledge. He knows your heart. That's what the Bible says. Man looks at the outward, but God knows the the heart. He knows the heart of the matter, and he knows what you'll do. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you can send yourself to hell and an eternity apart from Jesus Christ by not accepting his free gift of salvation. The Bible never ever teaches that God has chose some to be damned. God doesn't allow man to blame him for going to hell. It's his fault. It's not. God's sovereignty doesn't trample on man's free will. And by the way, they both exist. Let me show you scripture. Would you turn to Acts chapter 2 verse 23 as we wind down? Yeah, we're Right at the end here, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let me show you a few places where they both exist together. Man's free will, God's sovereignty. Acts two twenty-three. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God, that's gonna fall under the category of God's sovereignty. Notice the very next thing. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. That is under man's responsibility. Determine, according to the foreknowledge of God, you have done this wicked deed. Go to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And again, a careful reading of the scriptures. will see this all throughout. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Excuse me. 13 verse 48 Acts 13 48 Now when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed What category is that? The sovereignty of God right? the predestination of God Now back up to verse 46 Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, now who's doing the rejecting, man or God? Man, this is man's choice. And you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So we have God's sovereignty, those that were appointed to eternal life believe. Who wasn't appointed at this particular time? Those that didn't believe. Those that rejected." We have to have a free will in order to have fellowship with someone. Nobody's in relationship here of love. There's no one in a love relationship that's listening to my voice that is forced to love that person. <laughs> love is not forced. We're not controlled by fate. We're human beings and not robots. Living in the age in which we live, where all these weird, all artificial intelligent robots are being created, you can tell, absolutely, you're not a robot. I don't care how they create them. I don't care what, how much they try to make believe they're somehow human. Robots are not human. Jesus didn't die for robots. He died for you and me. And the question really is, have you walked through the door of salvation? God's sovereignty is flexible in his operation as he adapts himself to the condition of human hearts. He condescends in order to love The greatest act of God condescending to man is what? Him becoming a man. If that's not coming down to our level, I don't know what is. The eternal son of God emptying himself according to Paul in Philippians and taking on the form of a human being, the place of a servant. Don't tell me that God doesn't condescend to our level. And every time the gospel is preached, God is reaching down to man He doesn't lose his sovereignty. He doesn't stop being God. He sovereignly reaches down in order to rescue and to save. Trying to grasp that's been said this, and I quote, trying to grasp the beauty of this doctrine, someone once said that over the door into heaven is written, whosoever will. But once you go through that door, it says on the back end, chosen from the foundation of the world. Isn't that great? You're walking in, whosoever will, and you walk in, and you turn around, and you go, hey, from the foundation of the world, buddy. It's awesome. I love that. And the question is, if you walk through, the call of salvation is to everyone. And if I was you, I would walk through that door today. This whole truth of predestination, election, sovereignty of God is, is really for our comfort and our encouragement. For the believer, you can look back and say, I'm saved, I'm chosen, I'm elected. God foreknew me, he predestined me. I'm safe and I'm secure in Jesus Christ. No one will snatch me out of my father's hand, John chapter 10. But for those who aren't saved, Jesus is so good, he'll save you if you'll call upon his name. He'll rescue you from your life right now of sin and death and give you life. And he accepts you. And whosoever will, let him come. Take that for the evening. Go to bed on that. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man. It's so beautiful. God, we're in awe of you. And certainly, you know, in a 45-minute message, there's no way I could grasp. And I could teach this every day of the week. And I would never be able to grasp the enormity and the immensity of such a topic. And I'm thankful for my brothers that might disagree with me or my sisters that hold to a different theological view that might disagree with me on these matters. That we might not seek to strive and to fight over such things, but rather let's go forward with the gospel. Let's go fight arm in arm as believers, not fighting believers and biting and devouring one another. That we would go forth in love and mercy and grace. That we would accept both your sovereignty and our responsibility, Lord. And forgive me where I have fallen into the trap of arguing over such things. That, Lord, I've Forgive me for those times and I'm sure there'll be future. Well, I've allowed secondary things to break away, you know, fellowship or difficulties and instead just seeking, Lord, your faith, your mercy and your grace. Thank you for being patient with us, God, in our weakness. And, And may the church arise, the real church, the true church that believes in your vicarious atoning sacrifice on our behalf and we arise and reveal to this world a true love. You said that you would, we would be known for our love for one another, not for our arguing or our slick doctrine, explaining it all, going back to a man to prove our point. But rather, Lord, let us humbly come to you and let you prove your point through us. Forgive us. And for me, I can only speak for myself. I've seen this time and time again in my life where I've fallen that temptation. And I uh, just don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it at all, but I don't want to do it anymore, Lord. I want to be used of you in greater ways. And finally, Lord, uh, well, not necessarily fine, but I want to thank you publicly for George Ellington uh, and in his role in my life. It's the public school English teacher who is a believer that you use greatly. And I know there's many believers that are in the public school system right now. Use them, Lord. Use them. I know there's a lot of kids, believing kids in the public school system. Lord, use them in these last days. Keep them strong and safe and protected with your love and your mercy that they might not get ripped off by the enemy. And for the kids right now that are ripped off, bring them home, Lord. Bring them back. Bring them back, not just physically, although that'll be a great beginning, but bring them back mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, Lord. Bring them to the end of themselves, like it says. You wouldn't have put the prodigal son story in the Bible if it wasn't gonna happen. You don't want us to understand the father heart or those that have wandered away. So bring them home, Lord. We claim them. The devil does not own our kids. The devil does not own the prodigal and the confused and the wandering and the unsure and the doubter and the one that just is so uh, enamored by the world, Lord. You own them. You own them, Lord. They have confessed their faith in you and I pray you'd bring them home and that you would bring them back to fruitfulness. I'm sick and tired of the enemy ripping our kids off and stealing them away, Lord, in this stupid world system. Lord, we pray for your soon return. But until then, God, let the church arise and be the light of the world, especially for our kids. Please, Lord, have mercy on our kids and our grandkids. Have mercy on our great grandkids. And have mercy, Lord, and even the unborn kids that will shine the light that are still in the womb right now. There's some moms in here right now that are developing a baby in their room and I pray that you would just be with those babies before they ever enter, this, enter into this world, Lord. That your hand would be upon them as they grow in the womb and enter in. So Lord, we plead for those that have fallen away and ask them for you to work on our behalf and they would choose to return. And Father, anyone that would needs to follow you today, that they would be so blown away by your love and your sovereignty and your power that they would bow the knee to the god of all creation who knows all and does all according to the purpose of his will having the epitome of foreknowledge and is so patient and kind with us who created hell not for believe, not for people but for the angels and because of our resistance and our rebellion because of our stubbornness and our obstinate hearts. Some are so stubborn and obstinate, Lord, they live their whole life rejecting you and we pray for softness of heart. While there's still breath, there's still life and while there's still life, there's still hope. We pray for them today, in Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora for prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.